You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We primarily focus on Kentucky. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show! Hello, and welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-hosts, Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. How are you all? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Sarah? Good. Hi, Matt. Doug's got a fresh new mic there. I, I do. We're like, going to sound better than the last time. It look, we are going to sound We're better. Not We're share. getting better. We're yeah. getting better. Looks cool. This is our third episode. This is our second episode with a guest, so I'm excited about that. Today, we're going to talk about glaciers and glacial processes, particularly continental scale glaciation and related processes that have impacted the landscape in northern Kentucky and Cincinnati area. Again, kind of with this podcast, I, we want to try to bring it back to, to Kentucky, but we're, we're going to cover cool, interesting, broad, broad topics. And I don't know how you all feel about this, but glaciers to me are a topic that, that drew me into geology, kind of. They're, they're one of the quintessential topics in geology um, that I think people think about when they hear the word geology right? Along with tectonics, earthquakes, volcanoes, right? Big scale earth processes. And, and glaciers are cool. They're captivating like kind of all those other big scale earth processes. So I think we could talk about that and, and relate that to some of Kentucky's landscape today. That's what we'll do. It'll be great. So we'll properly introduce glaciers and talk about glacial activity that has impacted Kentucky and Cincinnati area and the settlement uh, and growth of that area, which is super interesting. But first, let's introduce our guest. Uh, our guest is a fellow KGS colleague, Jason Dorch. Jason's a geologist with the geologic mapping section here at the Kentucky Geological Survey. Uh, Jason, welcome. Hi. And why don't you describe what you do, uh, your interests, and we'll go from there. Right. So um, I would call myself a tectonic geomorphologist but we can come back to that. I just want to yeah. make a quick comment yeah. um, on you said like glaciers draw people in and it's really funny because like I was drawn into geology by volcanology, looking at volcanoes and like thinking about collecting lava yeah. samples and stuff like that. And I ended up studying glaciers a lot. So you can actually say that my, my interest in geology was a song of fire and ice. I like it. Oh, <laughs> nice. Amazing. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna get a lot of that. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would describe myself as a tectonic geomorphologist. So what I'm interested in overall is, is surface processes. You know, like how different things like rivers or glaciers, landslides, earthquakes, you know, all these things, how they erode the surface and shape mountains, shape topography, right? And how that sediment gets removed and, and can influence tectonics, the uplift of mountains. So I'm, I'm more into like long-term um, evolution of the landscape is really my thing. Um, now, one of the biggest movers and shakers, pardon the pun, of that is glaciers, right? They're one of the most efficient movers of rock mass, right? They can erode a lot or, or degrade mountains a lot, and move a lot of sediment. So that's why I ended up studying glaciers so much. It's great. Um... So I guess I'll you know start with saying these topics we have on the show, some of them will be where we are experts, Sarah, Doug, myself, but majority of them 
will be topics where we're not experts. And so that's why we have experts like Jason. And, you know, as, as we kind of lay out episodes, you know, I'm starting to realize that we're not going to cover everything. And, and some of these big topics, we might just scratch the surface a little bit, but that's okay. There's lots of episodes to come and we'll, we'll be getting into as much as we can. I just wanted to sort of make that a disclaimer, I guess, um, about, about these episodes and topics. Does that make sense to you all? We don't know everything. We don't know everything. You're not <laughs> know it all. I should have just said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, a jack of all trades, so I know a little bit about a lot of things. Awesome. But I'm not an expert in anything, so you actually have the wrong guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can piece it together, probably. Yeah, I read this book once on glaciers. <laughs> so that does it. Yeah, no more than I do. Well, that's the thing. Like that's what you don't really think of Kentucky or Northern Kentucky or Cincinnati when you think glaciers, but that's what we're gonna expose to the audience today. So let's let's tee this up just with a very basic question: and what is a glacier? From my old school geomorph geomorphology textbook I had in college, the definition is. A mass of ice and snow formed by compaction and recrystallization of snow on land. And I just say on land because ice floating in water is not a not a glacier, so it's got to move move on land. And for this compaction and recrystallization and and accumulation of ice, you have to have snow that survives warming months and stays compacted and progressively gets larger and moves, so you don't have uh, more warming months. It doesn't doesn't allow that. Jason, is that a good definition, a, a basic definition that works? It's a definition. Okay. Um, I, I can give you <laughs> a more technical definition and then break yeah. it down for you if yeah, you want. Yeah, yeah. So there's different fields that deal with glaciers, right? So there's there's people who do glacial geomorphology, but then there's also like glaciologists who do like ice physics, you know, physics of glaciers and how they move and stuff. And so uh, a more technical Definition would be a glacier is a polycrystalline monomineralic metamorphic rock that deforms under its own weight, right? So basically what we're saying is that ice is a mineral, just like quartz or any other mineral that you see. Yeah. And monomineralic means that a glacier is just made out of a large mass of one minerals, right? So just like how you might have a sandstone that's mostly made out of quartz sand, you know, you would say it's a quartz sandstone or a quartz aronite. And this is just, you know, it's mostly ice minerals that make up a glacier. So it's monomineralic. And it's a metamorphic rock because it deforms, right? So at the Earth's surface, it's warm enough to a lot of times it will deform ductily, sometimes brittily, but mostly ductily, right? And under the stress of gravity, right? So that if you get a thick enough bundle of ice, right? The weight of the ice exceeds the, the crystal strength, right? So gravity will actually cause, cause it to deform and flow. That's why you get that process happening. Yeah, just just like behavior of, of rocks, glaciers can form or can behave elastically, plastically, or brittily. Right. And that's dictated by the amount of stress on the ice, what environment the ice is in. So that leads to generally two types of glaciers that I think most people are aware of, alpine glaciers and continental glaciers or also just ice sheets is another term for a continental glacier. Are there more narrow types of glaciers than that? But those are the two people know. Uh, I would say, yeah, those are like the two broad categories of glaciers and probably be the best way to say that. Yeah. Right. So continental 
ice sheets, you know, are big, lazy things. They're heavy. They don't, they don't necessarily flow fast or erode tons and tons and tons of material necessarily. Um, Alpine glaciers tend to, tend to be more dynamic and create more interesting landscapes. But, you know, there's all sorts of different, you know, depending on their size and how they flow. You know, you have Piedmont glaciers, which go out and, and have like a big lobe in the front, yeah. like an alluvial fan. You have little cirque glaciers, which sit up high in the topography in their little bowls. You get reconstituted glaciers, which are really neat. So it's like a, imagine a cirque glacier that goes off a cliff and then reconstituted as a glacier below at the base of the cliff, like a waterfall. Mm. So it has like an airfall component and it keeps going. Cool. Uh, so yeah. there's all sorts of neat, fun little quirky types of glaciers. And actually one big category that's not on here is um, rock glaciers. Rock you know. glaciers rock. are cool. Rock glaciers, yeah. Rock glaciers? I've just been reading about rock glaciers. I've been looking at water storage in alpine areas and have just learned that besides snowpack, which is commonly thought to be like your dominant storage in mountain areas, that you have um, storage in talus as well. And so this is water, not ice, but storage in talus. And then your rock glaciers is like that frozen water in your talus basically and so it's all under the rocks and unconsolidated materials but another like storage so component. Be, is that yeah. right is that a good it's that's yeah so <laughs> as with everything else it's more nuanced than that I'll, I'll give you the the 20 second breakdown right so yes that is a type of rock glacier and basically there's there's two types right there's Rock glaciers where there's a, a core of, of like pure ice, if you want to think of it that way, covered by tons and tons of debris. So say like if you get a toe of an alpine glacier covered in a lot of sediment, sometimes it will detach. And all that sediment on top actually protects it from solar radiation. So it keeps that core frozen and it will keep flowing downhill while the rest of the, the cleaner ice melts away. Right. And then the other type that you get is where you have interstitial ice, where you have a bunch of, of debris, like talus and alluvial fan or sediment cone or something in the mountains, and you get a bunch of water that freezes in between those little grains of rock, right? And then so it's more of an even mixture of ice and rock, and those can flow downhill and detach. And there was this huge debate between these two camps, you know, like the catastrophist versus the gradualist kind of thing. There's this huge debate that raged in the literature between some people. And one were like, no, no, they're all ice cored. And the other group was like, no, it's all interstitial ice. And it turns out there's a gradation. You know, <laughs> they were both right. Everybody's yeah. just looking at different stuff in different places. <laughs> but yeah, that's the, the debate has ended for you. you know? <laughs> oh, okay. So we'll, yeah. we'll focus on continental glaciers today. Big, large masses of ice that are not constrained by topography. These are huge ice sheets that have covered the surface of the earth at some point in time. That leads us to talking about the Midwest of the United States and continental scale glaciation and glacial surges or advances that happened in the Midwest during the Pleistocene. Uh, the Pleistocene is a epic in the Quaternary geologic period, if you're thinking about the geologic timescale. And the Pleistocene ranges from about 10,000 to 2.5 million years ago. So in geologic time, this is relatively recent. And in the Midwest of the United States, which you know, will include Ohio and Northern Kentucky for our purposes today, there are generally agreed upon three glacial surges. And we can maybe talk about whether surge is the right word, but three glacial, continental scale glacial advances in the Midwest that had an impact on 
topography in uh, Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky areas. So I'll just kind of quickly list these and we can talk about them if we want in detail. The oldest is what's called the pre-Illinoisian glaciation. Uh, it's uh, pre-Illinoisian, uh, I think a little over 2 million years ago, this continental ice sheet did reach into Kentucky. Uh, the actual ice itself reached in, into Kentucky. The Ohio River didn't exist at this time. We'll talk about that in a second. Evidence of pre-Illinoisian glaciation is less well-preserved than the younger glacial advances we're going to talk about. But evidence is mostly constrained to uplands on hills. That was about 2 million years ago. Then somewhere between 1.3 and 0.8 million years ago, there was what's called the Illinoisian glacial advance or glacial surge. This glacial surge blocked the some north flowing rivers and you had widespread outwash, which is a type of glacial deposit. It's all the meltwater, sand and gravel that comes off of these glaciers as they're melting away. So you have with the Illinoisian surge, you had a lot of reworking of these existing surface rivers and streams. And when you have that, you have a lot of deep incision, a lot of erosion in the landscape. If you read about this in detail, you'll see this part of the glacial surges is referred to as deep stage. So all these surface streams trying to adjust to a new level after they were totally reworked by this huge sheet of ice that came down. Then the youngest glacial uh, surge or advance is called the Wisconsin. And it was about 60,000 years ago. And I, I believe there is a lot of evidence and deposits for Wisconsin glaciation. So take this where you will. Um, short story is there were three episodes of glacial advance and retreat that had a serious major impact on the landscape in Northern Kentucky and Cincinnati. One thing that I will throw out there that um, I went and looked up after looking at these three different stages or advances was that I'd heard of other Kansan glaciation yeah. oh, yeah. or Nebraskan glaciation. And so I wondered where that fit into this. And what I found out was that that was, those were lumped together to be the pre-Illinoisian because there was, they were old terminologies that people thought were the separate advances and that it was cut and dry, but then found out it was much more complex than that. And they couldn't really be broken down that simply. And so if you hear Nebraskan or Kansan, yep. um, now those are just referred to as pre-Illinoisian. So I thought that was interesting. Correct. Yeah. Geologists love to change up their terminology, right? We, we do that in other areas of the science too. But I guess it's also just hard to pinpoint evidence of, of glaciation in, in these areas for continental scale glaciation. You know, if you don't have a lot of deposits or obvious eroded features in bedrock from this ice coming down, then you're it's hard to piece together the history. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to piece together the history, and I think it's even harder to date the rocks that are deposited, especially with the older stuff, and that's really where you run into problems. So date boulders, sand, gravel, cobbles that are deposited by the ice? Yeah, so if you have, I mean, it's, e it's easier for like the last glacial advance, right? And I, I would use a term like advance to surge, because when you say surge, I think of, a very fast flowing glacier, a glacier that's moving more than a meter per day. That would be like a surging glacier, right? Yeah, so you get these like, say, sheets of 
of glacial debris and they're not deposited anywhere, right? So one thing about preservation of sediments is you have to have accommodation space and accommodation space is basically a hole, right? So you have to have a hole somewhere that you can stick sediments into so they stick and stay there, right? And then you put more sediments on top. Well, what do glaciers do? They're big, they're heavy, they bulldoze stuff in front of them. So if there's sediments already there, they get shoved out in front, right? So it's hard to find places where you have layers of glacial sediments directly on top of each other so you have a preserved record. So that's kind of your first problem. After that, you have to think about dating them, right? So dating things that haven't been exposed on the Earth's surface can be really tricky. You could date like when uh, easily date when the rock initially formed. I mean, it's hard to date when that rock was transported and deposited yeah. by yep. the glacier, right? So it can be really hard to separate out these things. And I would say that there's much more than three advances, um, especially in the older stuff. It is all all lumped together. And then on top of that, you have these this ice margin, you know, the front of that ice sheet that's dynamic. It's moving. It's melting in some areas and advancing in others, and then that will reverse, you know, and you can think of it as like a wiggly jellyfish on a table or something. So getting that straight, you know, because what people want to, what they usually date or what they usually try to find out is what was the limit? What was the furthest extent of X ice advance of this event, right? And so when you have a dynamic margin that maybe lines up close to a margin of a previous glacial advance, it's all going to be jumbled together and it's really hard to separate. So Sarah brought up a, a important point that we need to get to, which is the Taze River system, especially with Pleistocene glaciation in Ohio, Northern Kentucky. These glacial episodes reworked an old drainage called the Taze, T-E-A-Y-S, which is a large, it was a large river system that flowed kind of west, northwest across Ohio and Indiana. And so there were tributaries to the Taze that included the Licking River, which is in Kentucky, the Kentucky River and some smaller streams in Ohio. Those were tributaries to the ancestral Tays. All those tributaries got blocked by the advancing ice that came down during the Pleistocene. And it diverted those tributaries, caused a lot of flooding, blocked because of the blocking of the ice, caused a lot of flooding. And that process ultimately formed the new modern day Ohio river. And you ultimately then had a disassembling of the taze. It, that system really didn't exist anymore. I, I think most of the, most of this was done during Illinois the Illinois glaciation, but I could be wrong about that. And one thing I thought was cool was how do we know there was an ancient river system called the taze, right? You, there's no real Valley you can see in central Ohio. That's flat as a pancake in Indiana. So how do we know there was an ancient river system there? Mainly because geologists are good at correlating well records and rock types that we see in well records over an area. So we look at clues and drilled wells to, to look at these um, ancient deposits that are observed in the subsurface, but not at the surface. So that's just a kind of a cool thing to think about. I mean, just broadly, like an old river system that was dismantled by the ice and now it, it formed the, the modern day Ohio River, which is integral to so many things we do in life, at least in this part of the world. Uh, so take that where you will. Yeah, it's kind of really interesting because the development of the Ohio River changed base level, right? So it changed the 
local elevation for the rivers of Kentucky, right? Of what the, where, where the bottom is, right? What they drain to. And so you can think of this as there's like little waterfalls or something at the mouths of say like the Licking River or someplace. And that started an erosional wave that went back up into the catchments. And it's why we have the rugged topography we have now in Eastern Kentucky, right? While we have other hazardous issues like uh, landslides and things, right? So if the viewers know where Laurel County is, down in Laurel County, you have much more subdued topographic landscape, like more rolling hills, more sediment in the valleys and smoother. And that's probably what all of Eastern Kentucky used to look like until the development of Ohio and this erosional wave working its way back through there, creating all these steep sided slopes. So glaciers do have a far afield effect. Actually, so far afield, just to go back one thing, and I will bring this back to Kentucky, I promise. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you had the ice sheets, like the uh, Scandinavian ice sheets and all the British Irish ice sheets and all that stuff coalescing together, you know, you had this, this big ice advance, these cold temperatures, and there's all these tree species in Europe that got, got migrated southward and basically um, their climatic zones, their habitat disappeared and they were effectively like pushed off into the Mediterranean Ocean and died, right? So that's why we have like beautiful places like the Black Forest, right? So it's like this one tree type. And one of the reasons Kentucky has a very, very rich forest, one of the richest forests in the world, is because a lot of the tree species that were here actually barely hung on in the tip of Florida, Right, uh -huh. when you have this big ice sheet develop, right? So this is one of those far afield effects. So all these tree species migrated south to stay in their warm zones to survive down to the tip of Florida, Florida in this little, they call them uh, refugia, these little refuge areas. And then when the ice sheets melted away, they migrated back up. So we have all these tree species here, you know, like hot beam and all sorts of other cool things. Uh, that's cool. Um, I didn't know that. You don't find in like Europe and other places. Let's talk about glacial deposits. Uh, we've... We've mentioned some of this terminology already, but I think it'd be good for the audience to define some of these, that we define some of these terms. So there are several types of glacial deposits. Uh, till is a very common one. Till is a very poorly sorted, what geologists call a diamictin. It's a very poorly sorted amalgamation of clay, sand, silt, cobbles, gravel. Uh, that was directly deposited by ice. So no water really at this point, just ice deposited, poorly sorted stuff. We've also, you also have outwash, which is a glacial meltwater deposited sand and gravel. You find outwash deposits in, in valleys that make up terraces that you see in modern day valleys in Cincinnati area, Northern Kentucky. Uh, another glacial deposit are laminated clays, so really soft clay deposits that are left over, I think, are you know from temporary glacial lakes. So you had a lot of flooding when you had uh, meltwaters coming off the ice. You had some temporary glacial lakes, and you get a lot of clays that settle in still water in, in glacial lakes. Luss that you can find on hilltops and ridges in northern Kentucky is windblown silt, wind coming off of the ice, blowing silt around and uh, depositing it on ridges. And the last one is kind of a catch-all term that you hear a lot. It's called glacial drift, which my understanding is just sort of a collective term of all kinds of glacial deposits, and you might not be totally sure what, what it is. I might be wrong about that. I think it's a little more antiquated of a term. Drift is. Yeah. yeah. It's really used that much anymore. 
Anything to say about glacial deposits? Well, I think I'll go back to um, Jason talking about the erosional wave a little bit ago. And so in geology, like that terminology is a nick point. And uh, that's how the the landscape readjusts to some change in that base level. And so I think nick points are really cool um, to learn about. And so I, I thought I'd throw out that terminology. Then also with laminated clays, laminated is, is layered, basically. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is it also related to the, the like the flocculation of the clay minerals themselves, how they kind of get uh, settled to? Kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I got a pet peeve about all that, but just, okay. So one for the audience, uh, when Sarah mentioned Nick points, that they're spelt with a K, just in case you guys want to look them up. Yeah. Yes. So I thought that'd be a good thing to know. Uh, my my pet pet peeve, I'm a crank about this, is yeah. uh, clay, clay versus silt. Um, this is more of a sedimentology thing or a geologist versus engineer thing. So, you know, just as far as generic blanket statements go are not necessarily always good. But in this case, engineers are always wrong. <laughs> uh, clays, you cannot make a clay from a geologist's perspective, at least, by mechanically crushing a rock. And that's what glaciers do, right? So if, if you're mechanically crushing a previous clay deposit, you can have clay. So if you're, if you're destroying a shale, for example, which is a rock made of clay, then yeah, you get clay. But if you take like granites or some sort of crystalline rock and you grind it up really, really fine, you get silt. You can't get a clay. A true clay has these tetrahedral and octahedral layers to them, and that gives them charged surfaces. And those charged surfaces is what allows them to flocculate out of water and settle, right? So they're, they're chemically distinct. Right, so yeah. we would say clays are born, not made um, in the sedimentology world. Uh, but that's my, my kind of cranky pet peeve. You can cut that out. What but, did the, yeah. there are, um, <laughs> can I say one thing about laminated leaks? Yeah, yeah. A very much more simple thing. <laughs> not cranky? Well, it's it's something that I find really cool and fascinating about if you see these deposits is uh, you can sometimes find these stones that have been embedded in in the laminated clays, drop stones. Yes, from, I love drop stones. Yeah, from a so you, you think about a, a little lake um, next to a glacier and it and it has a you know the glacier calves off the icebergs. The icebergs are carrying all this rock material that the glacier has picked up. The iceberg starts to melt and it drops those rocks into the lake and then those those stones embed into the into the clay. And then when you see these deposits after they're, you know, much later, um, you can see these these rocks, you know, embedded in the in the laminated clay and they're called drop stones and they're very cool. And sometimes What's really neat is is the rocks that were dropped can be significantly older than you know anything around. So Kentucky uh, has a few drop stones. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's There's another one. Episode. Yeah, Eastern <laughs> Kentucky. I know yeah, a big one there. And, and and I believe not related to Pleistocene glaciation. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, oh. interesting. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah for another time. Oh, um, but so on the old geologic maps in Kentucky, there are what the geologists called lacustrine deposits. Jason, are you saying that that's not, they're clay deposits, if I'm not mistaken, more or less. Mm-hmm. Do you think, is that an accurate description of that deposit then? No, we don't know. Sure. Yeah. Okay. 
I was going to say when we didn't talk about when we were talking about the Taze River system, but that during that shift from the Taze to the Ohio, uh, there was also a giant glacial lake in parts of Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky. I think it's called the Tight Lake, but that was a 7,000 square mile lake. So I think close to the size of like Lake Superior. Um, and glacial lakes like are common. Lakes are commonly associated with deglaciation, I believe. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I wondered about if you, we could find some of those sediments that we're talking about in Kentucky still. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it makes me curious. Yeah, there's definitely some glacial sediments, especially in like northern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Like lake Around. sediments? Th- yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. 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 You oh, can yeah. see them on, the, on our geologic maps. There's yeah. some of them mapped out. And Louisville's built on outwash, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, that whole area. Yeah. So yeah, there's I mean there's a lot of things associated with with glaciers and it's it's interesting what terms you picked out for glacial and surface deposits and and you're right, these are are deposits, right? But there's other there's uh subglacial deposits and landforms that aren't really mentioned, right? So you get things like drumlins, which are like these sediment long sediment ridges or um flutes or they're big scours like the Great Lakes, like some of the, the Great Lakes were or big scoured over deepenings created by the Laurentide ice sheet that made it all the way down to Kentucky, right? So you get these big subglacial landforms and you get little stuff too, like these little crescentic fractures or gouges, right? So if you see lines of little semicircular crescent fractures on a rock surface and there's a bunch of them in a straight line in a row, you know, those are called like chatter marks where a rock was being drug along and it's just kind of skipping from one spot to the next one, digging in. I, th- I think, yeah. you know, north of Cincinnati, there are drumlins and eskers, yeah. uh, flutes. Um, I don't think Kentucky has any drumlins or those kinds of deposits. Uh, I, could be, I could be wrong. It would be one of the older glaciations that made it down here as well. Yeah. So, I mean, and again, those types of things are probably preserved, especially when we have newer ice right yeah. on top of it or a million years of weathering and erosion and people plowing and deforesting and things like that going on. So what landscape observations do we have? What kind of landscape characteristics do we have because of this continental glaciation advance and retreat of ice? Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area is is obviously dominated by the modern day Ohio River. Just the Ohio River itself, right? Yeah, so, right. The north flowing tributaries of the Tays were dammed, formed the modern day Ohio, and that essentially became an ice margin stream for subsequent advances of the continental glaciers. So it's obviously a dominating feature in the area. It's important for a lot of reasons. But let's just talk a little bit about some specific landscape features in Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati. And the first thing that came to mind for me, and I don't know why this sticks in my brain. There's lots of, I don't know, unique geologic things that stick with me. I guess that's why I like geology. But this concept I first heard in grad school called Misfit Valleys. And so the question is, why is Mill Creek in Ohio uh, so wide? Why is the Licking River Valley so wide? Why is the Little Miami River Valley so wide when all that's in there is a small stream or a small river? And so you go to these overlooks in Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, you can look out on these valleys and see they're very broad and with a little stream in the middle. So that's the Misfit Valley. Why, you know, why did that happen? And so I just, that's very cool. And the main reason is the discharge of all the 
meltwater and outwash really flattened out uh, these valleys, dammed up those tributaries, and made big, these big, big broad valleys that now just little streams sit in. So that main valley, that Mill Creek Valley, is that main valley in downtown Cincinnati. It's huge, broad. That's you know one of the reasons Cincinnati was settled there. Uh, but it's off of the main floodplain, so it's on outwash. Uh, but you got a little little Mill Creek just in the middle of it. Uh, I think that's kind of kind of unique. Yeah, it explains Louisville as well. Uh, I question the Licking River reference though, because that's north flowing, right? So there's no ice sheet at the head of the Licking River. So I think that's just a drainage re- reorganization problem that right. created that underfit underfit stream. Yeah, but you know, you know, like like Doug said too, just to jump in. You know, the Ohio River would not be the Ohio River without the ice sheet, right? So that's like your biggest first order impact. If you think about, you know, you wouldn't have Porkopolis develop, <laughs> right? Because it wouldn't be, there'd be no Mark Twain, you know, right. writing books about boats steaming up the Mississippi because there'd be no place to go to over there, right? <laughs> so like that entire, think about the entire part of culture would be missing. Lewis and Clark never would have made it. <laughs> right. Without glaciers. That's right. You know, so it's it's had a huge cultural impact, even though, you know, we're not talking about Robert Service poetry, but, sure. you know, even in this region, it's had a huge a- impact in how things have developed here. You have this kind of tug of war with, with the topography. So topography largely depending on areas of older dissected slopes with glacial uh, drift is an antiquated term, but glacial, let's just say glacial drift, glacial deposits, sediments. glacial sediments versus uh, areas of poorly drained flat uplands uh, developed on till and outwash so that those deposits really shape the landscape steepness of slopes you know ridge formation and all those kinds of things you see in northern kentucky and cincinnati well go ahead so you know what i would say on that is it's, it's not just glaciers it's glaciers and rivers yeah um and there's you know just like the debate that I was talking about earlier, you know, catastrophist versus gradualist or whatever debate you want to pick. There was a, a longstanding debate about whether glaciers or rivers were the more efficient eroder, you know, rock remover of the landscape. And it turns out it's the switching between glaciation and then a river dominated effluvial system that does, you know, the most damage to the topography, to the landscape and changes most of the landforms. So having that big ice sheet here, you know, that does things like reorganizes river and changes base level. And then after the base level is changed, it's the river's job to catch back up to that and they in size and you know, we would say rejuvenate the landscape, create the steeper side of topography, right? So it's not just where do glacier deposit sediments, it's how did they affect the river systems. And then the river systems catch up and do their own thing and make a a landscape that's not very conducive to letting glaciers flow easily which then in turn during the next glacial period, allow the glaciers to erode and flatten more things, right? So they play off of each other in a very dynamic way. Yeah, yeah. I think with that debate as well, timescale was important when looking in like more short term, glaciers appear to do more more damage, more work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you step back and look at a broader timescale, then you see that it is at balance and that they are more equal. Right. Um, so I thought that was... Interesting. There are areas where glaciers got around rivers completely and did their own thing and did a much better job at it. So I would say that. Um, 
but don't pick a side or anything. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's observations. These is facts. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Um, there's a there's a particular area where a, a large glacier would come down and block a, a river valley, and then um, like that came in like at a T junction, right? And in that T junction, valley would fill up with water until that glacier melted back. Then you'd have this catastrophic flood. We had cubic kilometers of water going down flushing out all the glacial debris. So this glacier eroded all the rock and it created its own flood effectively to wash the debris away. So next time it came down, it could just erode more rock, you know, completely got around the rivers, but. That's incredible. Um, so not not landscape related, but we can't we can't go through this podcast without men- mentioning Big Bone Lick State Park, which is in Boone County, Kentucky. It's a really fascinating park and it's famous for Pleistocene age, mammalian fossils so i believe wasn't it the fossil of the month this month is the mastodon which will be which i just posted today kgs fossil of the month fossil of the month we have a fossil of the month every month and this month is mastodon and they're beautifully written web pages about fossils um, written by Steve Greb here at KGS. Yeah. but correct me if I'm wrong, but what happened was these large mammals, mastodons, sloths, other things came down off of the ice to take advantage of salt springs that were in this part of Kentucky. They got trapped in these these springs and bogs that were adjacent to the ice, and they died. And the their bodies were very well preserved, uh, so they got buried. And uh, now they're now they're some of the most world famous ice age fossils, and I mean world famous. Like people came from all over to to dig these up. Some of them are in the museum at the park, but a lot of them got taken other places, taken to museums in Europe, museums in Nebraska, and I think there's been effort in the past ten years or so to get a lot of those mastodons, especially back to the park. Yeah, likely the Smithsonian because Thomas Jefferson had some some brought back to his his estate i think yeah um by lewis and clark but yeah i believe that's referred to as the birthplace of paleontology right like yeah that's well, vertebrate, paleontology. vertebrate yeah vertebrate yeah amazing mm-hmm. i love that so another far afield effect right you your glaciation goes away you lose the mastodons and then you lose mastodons were eating what osage oranges Right. And pooping out the seeds. So all your Osage orange forests go away. And these things always have these like continual knock on effects. Um, That and I will say that it was kind of a childhood dream that I've yet to achieve on my bucket list to uh, get a big cat like a Maine Coon and name it Mastodon. It's never too late. Big, fuzzy, fluffy cat. I'll throw a plug out there for our story map that we have on the KGS website for Northern Kentucky geology. Yes. Oh, yeah. um, and yeah. so there are several sites in Northern Kentucky that are featured in that story map that talk about um, some of these glacial um, features, I guess, that are left behind. So Big Bone Look is one of those. Boone Cliffs. Boone, Boone Cliffs, yeah. which I got the opportunity to go out and look at Boone Cliffs with one of our geologists, Steve Martin. And um, he was showing me these glacial deposits. One of the things that I found fascinating was that you can see all three there, deposits from the pre-Illinoian, Illinoian, and Wisconsin. And you can tell the difference by how lithified or turned into rock that these deposits are. And so your oldest pre-Illinoian um, is actually 
turn into like a conglomerate type of rock. Like a lithified till, right? Yeah. I think. And then you get your your most recent your Wisconsin is all still unconsolidated material. And then your Illinois in the middle is in the middle of those two. It's like partially lithified in some areas and still loose in others. Um, and so that's on there. And then one more thing that's on there that I thought was fascinating was the gravel pit where they had um, extracted gravel from these gravel pits. And that became um, what they used to build the modern interstate system. So pretty big deal. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So check out the story map. Story maps. Um, Can I put a plug in? Yep. <laughs> I want to put a plug in for ice. <laughs> and it, no, seriously. We've been well, talking about it. Yeah. Uh, something for the audience to think about. You know, ice is a mineral, just like any other. Yeah. I was going to say, it, it won last year's mineral cup, which is a. Um, That's right. <laughs> yeah. A Twitter. Like contest. an NCAA tournament for minerals. Uh, right. Yeah. It's very, it's very competitive. Um, people get, people yeah. get, oh yeah. Get, but ice won last year. <laughs> yeah. um, I voted it all the way. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, uh, um, we can, we can maybe talk ice. about that later, you guys in private. I just don't know if I. <laughs> but what I wanted to say about ice is this though. Um, ice is a mineral, right? Glacier is a rock. But if you follow the through thread of this, right? It's just a low temperature mineral. It just melts at a much lower temperature than other minerals, right? Quartz melts at 600 degrees C. Ice melts at zero degrees C, right? So your cup of water is lava, right? <laughs> An aquifer is magma. It, you know, just like, like you get ash coming out of the sky, snow is pyroclast debris. And when it sticks together in a snowbank, you know, it's a welded tough. We don't, we don't want to scare our audience. I mean, it's so. a perfect mineral. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, yeah, and the last part, thank you for reminding me, Doug. There's more crystalline forms of ice than any other mineral. And everybody can go and look this up. Um, look up ice 16. That's a metal, which is kind of pretty cool. Okay. Um, well, I think we're, we've done a good job here of covering continental glaciation and, and lands, glacial landscapes and Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky. I just want to leave by you know, kind of maybe teeing up one more thing uh, before we sign off. But I, and I think we did a good job of this in, in this discussion. But there, there really is a practical significance to glacial activity, glacial landscapes, glacial deposits to this area of the world that's, that's Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky. It's got 2 million people that live there. And just the influence and history of glaciation that has affected where people live, the location of roads. Cincinnati had a lot of canals back in the day, railroads, where we put the airport, locations of factories, homes, parks, vistas. I mean, Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky have beautiful vistas that owe their origin to much of these processes we've been talking about. So it's, it's an amazing landscape that, you know, and it owes itself to these glacial processes. And not to mention some of the things, Sarah, I think you started to talk about, which are engineering geology factors. Availability of groundwater in these thick glacial deposits is a huge deal. Construction materials like gravel pits, waste storage in glacial aquifers, urban hillslope development, landslides. So hazards are related to glacial landscapes in a very important way. So. It's just all to say that I think this is a practical, applied, geologic 
topic that was uh, that we did a good job laying out. Yeah, I, th- I think you did. You guys did a great job. And I would just throw in, don't forget about Forrest Mark Twain and yeah. that erosional wave that exposed all those hill slopes, so you could see the coal beds that were used for mining. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of far field effects from glaciers. Um, I had one more thought yeah. that I'll throw out. Uh, a really cool is it exhibit. About ice? <laughs> it is about ice. A really cool exhibit. If you want to see, besides some of the places in our story map, I think that the Cincinnati Museum oh. has a really mm. well done yep. um, Pleistocene Tom Ice Wolf's Age exhibit. Exhibit. That's a, yeah, so I recommend going and seeing that. Agree. Super cool. Took a glaciology class from Tom Wool. I'm sorry. I said I took a glaciology class from Tom Wool. The guy who designed that uh, that exhibit. That's smart awesome. guy. Yeah. yeah, it's well done. I he gave me impressed. a B. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, yeah. Jason got a B. I don't know, I don't know why we invited you on here. <laughs> um, well, I think we did good. Thank yeah. you all very much, Jason. Thank you for being a guest. You're it was welcome. Great. And uh, yeah, anything else? No, it was fun. Yeah. Super fun episode. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, Until next time. Bye. 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 This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Ben Corwin and Alicia Gregory at UK's Office of Research Communications for technical support. If you have any ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening.